Uh, the first reading today is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and I'll be reading from verses 7 through to 12. You'll find that on page 731. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Uh, the second Bible reading is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, and it's on page 1162. Philippians 2, verse 1, page 1162. <clears throat> if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, 
not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Thank you. Uh, If you can keep Philippians 2 open, uh, we're going to get to that very shortly. But before we do, I think it's only right that we come before God in prayer. So uh, will you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have now to come uh, before you. Uh, come into your presence and to be thinking and dwelling upon this passage. We pray that you would be softening our hearts, opening our minds, that you'd be uh, speaking through uh, what is written here and what the Apostle Paul had to say to the Philippians, that uh, we might be challenged by what your word contains uh, and changed for the sake of your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So a quick history lesson, Uh, early 5th century AD, uh, there was this man named Simeon, Uh, Simeon of the Pillar Saints, that name will probably make a bit more sense shortly, Uh, Simeon was really into being a Christian, Uh, so much so that age 16 he went and joined a monastery so that he could get away from everyone and just spend as much time as he could alone with God, just Simeon and God. Uh, and, of course, you know, this started looking very, very devout, and people kept on hearing about this devout man named Simeon. Uh, and so they decided, well, look, Simeon knows what's up. We should go and ask him questions, ask him about God, ask him to pray for us. Um, but that was a problem. Simeon had joined this monastery to get away from everyone, to, you know, just spend time alone with God, just himself. And here were all these people coming to him and eating into his precious God time. Uh, he needed to get away. So first plan, he ran into the middle of the desert, built a mud hut around himself, but people kept coming. Then he tried a cave in the mountains, and all this just continued to prove how devout this man was. And so people just kept coming and coming and asking him about God and asking him for prayer, and Simeon was getting desperate. So eventually, he came up with one last plan. He left his cave, and he started stacking stones, one atop the other, building a pillar. Eventually, the pillar got 15 meters tall. It was actually only one meter square on the top, and atop which Simeon sat, finally alone, the crowds too far below to bother him anymore. Simeon spent the remaining 37 years of his life on top of that pillar. Just Simeon, his pillar, and God. My question Is the example set by Simeon, you know, the pinnacle of Christian living? 
Should we be completely separating ourselves from absolutely everyone and spend every waking minute just us and God? I think the Apostle Paul would answer that question, time with God alone, that's good and important, but no, it's not the only thing we need. In the letter to the Philippians, the Apostle Paul is writing to the early church in the city of Philippi. Throughout the letter, he is talking about Christian living, life with Jesus in charge. One day we're going to be with God, but for now we're here, we're on earth, we're alive. What are we supposed to do in the meantime? What does Christian living look like right now? And so today we're going to look at two things that the Apostle Paul has to say about living as a Christian under Christ. The first is the importance of community following the example of Christ. Paul wants to make it clear that Christian living will have an impact on how we relate to one another. If you look with me at verse 1, Paul lists a series of Christian aspects, things that are going to be evident in a Christian life. To be united with Christ, our Savior, well, that's a source where we can find encouragement. To know his love is a source of comfort. And of course, if we're united with Christ, that means we're in fellowship with the Spirit. And the Bible tells us that among numerous things, he'll be developing in us tenderness and compassion. Paul doesn't seem to be too concerned, actually, about these things in the church of Philippi. He doesn't raise them anywhere else in the letter. I think he takes it as a given that this is what's happening. Instead, he uses these things as a diving block into what comes next. You are showing evident fruit of a personal relationship with God. So, if you'll read with me verses 2 to 4, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. The natural follow-through of a Christian life described in verse 1 is going to be verses 2. That those who uh, share these characteristics should be like-minded, sharing in love, being one in spirit and purpose. It's interesting, in verse 1, he's talking about these things on an individual, personal level, us and God. Well, now Paul argues that this vertical relationship should flow out and have an impact on the wider Christian community to this. Christian living is going to have an impact on how we relate to one another. It's interesting, our friend Simeon of the Pillar Saints, he's clearly got the first verse down packed, but how can he be loving others if all he wants is to get away from them? Christian living is not a private affair. Paul then starts to get more practical. In verses 3 to 4, he starts discussing living in humility. Christian living will not involve selfishness or vanity. Instead, a focus on others. Humility. Humility. Simple, right? It's just got to be humble. I think most of us are going to recognize that uh, humility is a pretty good thing, but it's far from easy to figure out. So Paul, fortunately, gives us an example. If you look at verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In everything that Paul has been talking about so far, look to Christ. That if we want to understand this community-focused Christianity, this humility, this selflessness, then we have to understand the attitude that Christ had. 
And so we have this hymn of sorts, the attitude of Christ. Please read with me from verse 6. Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I don't know, I actually feel strange reading this passage out loud. There's this weird disconnect as we take this downward spiral. It just doesn't seem right. God himself, the creator and sustainer of all things, who holds all power, did not use that power in the way that we should probably expect. No, he made himself a servant. Imagine for a second the queen. She decides, you know what, I am done with this. I'm going to give up on this whole royalty business. Open a free shoe sign stand in Piccadilly Circus. No, that's unbelievable. Uh, that's so ridiculous. I can't get that image to stick in my head. Yet what God does is so much more unthinkable. He becomes a servant. The one who should be served, serves. He enters his own creation, taking on frail human form. He humbles himself. The gospel tells us time and time again of how Jesus looked to the interests of others. He heals the sick, has compassion on the weak, cares for the downtrodden, the vulnerable, the unloved. But he didn't stop there. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. God became man and was condemned to die by a rigged trial. As he hung on the cross, those passing by mocked him. He saved others, let him save himself. But he could have, but instead he stayed on that cross. Proclaimed with a loud voice, it is finished. Took his last breath and died. He didn't have to do any of this. Why did he stay up there on that cross? Why did he come down in the first place? God is under no obligation to us. Why not? The humans have dug themselves into this hole, so let them stay there. We have a problem. Every single one of us, it goes by the name of sin. It is our rejection of God. It is our pride, our belief in a world where we don't need God. It pervades every aspect of our life and, in fact, it corrupts everything that the good creator created good. It's the reason why there were sick for Jesus to heal, for the weak and downtrodden for Jesus to show compassion to. Sin is the reason we face death. And in death, we will face judgment from the very same God who we rejected. God could have left us to our own devices. But if he had done that, we would be in a very sorry state. Instead, God had a plan. God became man. God humbled himself. He humbled himself to death. He humbled himself to face his own judgment. 
Because if Jesus didn't, we would have had to. He faced judgment in our place so that we might be right with God. Despite every possible warning, we have dug ourselves into a hole. Yet God gets into this hole with us and offers to lift us out. Paul says, verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus, who gave up his position of authority for our sake, who became a servant so that he could serve us, who gave up his life so that we might have life. The one who was in very nature God did not use that nature to condemn us as we deserve. Instead, he used his nature as God to rescue us to fix what we've broken, to lift us out of the mistakes that we could not lift ourselves out of. And so if we believe that Christ humbly gave himself for us, then we've got to share this same attitude. Christian living will have an impact on how we relate to one another in God's community. But that's only part of it. The second point that Paul wants to talk about is that Christian living is about trusting God's plan in a world opposed to his. God's purposes are big. And I think it's going to take no one here by surprise when I say that part of Christian living is trusting God's plans. But we still live in this world whose purposes are opposed to his. So how do we hold these two things in tension? This is a question uh, that I've got to see quite closely. Um, Back before college, I was working as a software developer uh, in this shared workspace where there were a lot of startups. Um, You know, companies which are starting small but dreaming really, really big. Uh, As such, I got to know a lot of startup founders. And I got to learn that most startup founders fall into one of two categories. The first... I'm going to make this startup and get big. And the second, I'm going to make this startup and fix the world. And sometimes it was actually a combination of the two. Uh, all these founders would have some kind of grand, wonderful plan. And sometimes this plan would succeed and more often than not it would fail. But the attitude underlying all of this was almost always the same. The attitude, I can do this. I can be the one to get rich. I can be the one who's going to fix the world. Wherever you look, no matter how altruistic the startup was, the attitude of pride was almost always evident. And so the plans, the purposes of these founders, they were very much what we would describe as the purposes of this world. Purposes that focus on the immediate Purposes that are based on the human ability. The problem being that it was the human ability that got us into this mess in the first place. So how are we supposed to dig ourselves out? As a Christian living in this world, we need to hold this intention with God's purposes. Because his purposes are not focused on the immediate, but on the eternal. What will last Because his purposes are based not on human ability, but on his own power. And unlike a startup, which has a 90% failure rate, his purposes are going to exceed. How do we know that? Well, where we finished reading, it ended on a little bit of a low note. God became man and became obedient to death on the cross. And yes, that was necessary for our redemption, but there should still be this sour taste in our mouth. 
That said, if you are familiar with the story, you'll know that he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and suddenly death has lost its permanence. And that's where the hymn picks up again, from terrifying descent to unimaginable triumph. Read along with verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God did not come just so that we can have another shot at life, maybe with better morales this time. No, he came to establish a totally new order, one, a new kingdom with Jesus on the very top. As believers, as those who trust and rely on the humble works of Christ on the cross, we inherit citizenship into this new kingdom of God. As believers, we get to look forward to the fulfillment of God's promises. But the question remains, what are we supposed to do now as we wait for this fulfillment? Paul's response to this continues, starting verse 12. Please read it with me. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you and will to will and to act according to his good purpose. As we wait for Jesus' return, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work for our salvation, work out our salvation. It's something we've already received. It's a response to the work of God in us. And with fear and trembling, uh, not out of some terror of being rejected by God so much, but because this is serious stuff. We do this, work out our salvation, trusting God and his purposes. Paul elaborates for us by getting practical again in verse 14 to the first half of 16. If you'll read it with me. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Paul continues with his instructions from before. We are to hold this attitude, loving and serving our brothers and sisters without complaining or arguing. Why? Well, because that corrupts what we're doing to serve God. Instead, we should aspire to be blameless and pure servants. The attitude that Christ had when he humbly came to serve, when he obediently went to the cross for our sake. It changes the community. It's beautiful. And it ought to be said, I've been here 20 years and it's a beauty that I've seen at this church time and time again. It should be an encouragement, something that we should strive to continue. But also, not just an attitude solely experienced by those inside the church. In verse 15, it becomes clear that this blamelessness, this purity is seen beyond the church doors. Work out our salvation is going to change us. So we are different in amidst the world around us. Christian living is going to involve an active, visible, life-changing trust in God in the midst of a world that Paul says is crooked and depraved. 
To explain the context in which Paul was writing this, the city of Philippi was pretty much the complete opposite of everything Paul was arguing for. Take, for instance, humility. Firstly, it was named by the Greek king, Philip II, after himself. Uh, And then the city grew in wealth and power and prestige till it became more or less a miniature Rome. If you had dreams of success and grandeur, inscriptions in the city informed you that Philippi was the place to make this happen. And to be honest, I'm not sure that 1st century Philippi and 21st century Sydney are as far away as they would appear. No one needs to tell you that we live in a society that is opposed to the purposes of God. It's not just limited to the world of startups, I can tell you that. Pride and self-service are almost commodities. Offers at every corner to get ahead in life. And even if the motivation isn't, you know, personal success, it can still be prideful. The prevailing attitude of the 21st century, we can fix all these problems ourselves. All we need is that new app, or that new service, or protest, or policy, or government. The attitude of the world is that we don't need this God fellow to step in for us. What do we do in the face of that attitude? Have the attitude of Christ. In the midst of first century Philippi, Paul says that the Philippians need to live humbly, selfless, pure, blameless, shining like stars in the universe. And by this example, verse 16, the Philippians would be holding out the word of life, the opportunity to know Christ, the opportunity to trust in his death, to citizenship in the kingdom of God. Paul concludes this passage reminding the Philippians of his own ministry. His motives are clear. The work he does, the race he runs, the sacrifices he makes are so that those he reaches may know Christ as he does. And despite the difficulties that they may bring, Paul believes he and the Philippians have every right to rejoice. An attitude like that of Christ Jesus. Christian living. Living for the good of those around you. Living, trusting in God in this world. Simeon of the Pillar Saints, I don't think he got this quite right. We can't afford to withdraw ourselves from God's community because that was not the example that Christ gave us when he gave up everything for our good. And at the same time, we can't afford to withdraw ourselves from the world either because God has put us into it, that we may be like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. So what can we do? Can I leave you with some questions to churn over in your head? How's your attitude? Is it the attitude of Christ? This brother or sister in Christ, how can I put them ahead of myself today? What do I do when we disagree? That's not a question of how do I be a pushover, but how can I be the first to get on the same page, to be like-minded? How can we make sure that we have the same love, spirit, and purpose in what we're trying to achieve here at All Saints? How can we use whatever is to our strength, however small that is, to help our brother or sister?
whether that's using your gifts for formal rostered service, whether that is using your money to support the church and its ministries, whether that is using your energy to humbly love the outsider, whether that is simply using your time to pray for this community, that is humble service. And when we do that, trusting not in our own purposes or reasoning for it, but trusting in God's own plan, and when we do that without complaining and grumbling, instead blamelessly and purely, that's the attitude of Christ. That will display the way we value the gospel to the world around us. And this church will continue to shine like stars in the universe. Will you please pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, for how you have sent him that we may know you, for how you have sent him, and he is now an example for us. We pray you might humble us. We pray you might transform our heart and fill it with the same love and attitude that Christ had for us. Lord, uh, we pray that we wouldn't leave here hard-hearted, but that you would be continuing to change us throughout this week, that we may see our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we may see your creation in this world, and that we may be struck with love for it in uh, whatever way we do, wherever you send us to serve. And so we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.